All right, so uh, we're currently in the second chapter of this uh, large section of the book of Isaiah, uh, and it's all prophecies about the servant of the Lord, who we've already identified by the description in the text that this is the Messiah. Uh, this is the, the second person of the Trinity. Who's that? Jesus. That's right. And uh, as I said before, um, I was reading a, a commentary. I haven't read yet on Isaiah today. And they too called it the, the, the servant songs. But there's no lyrics. It's just prophecy. So um, I, I need to look up the history of where, who the first person was that said it. And if you've ever done that, if you've ever heard like a, a Christian cliche or a common interpretation of a particular text that is um, often repeated by people in the church, it's always good to look it up to find out who said it first. <clears throat> and sometimes... Uh, some, the, the saying is actually a misinterpretation of the text. And then you find out its origins. And then you, like one of them, I, I looked up and found out that the first guy that said it actually said it properly in the context of the text. And then all of these people that respected him a lot misinterpreted him. And then, you know, yeah. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book called Exegetical Fallacies. Has anybody read that? Come on, you guys. No, it's really good. Um, some of it's pretty technical, but he does uh, the history of some of those things as well, fallacies in the past and how they've been. Somebody picked up the baton and ran with it, and it was never right to begin with, but people will grab onto it. And yeah. Aaron, have you read Exegetical Fallacies? You can borrow mine. So, All right. In the chapter, the prophet builds a contrast between um, disobedient Judah and the faithfulness of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, and how deliverance is found, uh, and, and this is interesting, both in fearing the Lord and obeying his servant. Isn't that interesting in an, an Old Testament passage like that? And um, so yeah, we'll get to it tonight. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? It's a short chapter <clears throat> compared to uh, some of the other ones. Chapter 49 was pretty big. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word and season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord will give, I'm sorry, surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, 
They will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his... Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your son did not just show up out of nowhere, but you told us in advance. And so, Lord, when he came, it was no surprise. It should have been no surprise. But your plan of redemption, the incarnation, the life, the, the death, the resurrection of your son, it's, it's all been laid out. It wasn't plan B. It was always the original plan to save us, to glorify you. And um, Lord, I thank you for this prophecy, and I pray that you would teach us from it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I have this cool rod iron, rod iron bench, so I'm going to, or stool, I'm going to sit on it. Is that okay? All right. Well, let's, let's get into it a little bit. So, thus says the Lord, <clears throat> where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities, you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. So, uh, you know, right out of the gate, uh, the Lord is accusing Judah specifically. And here it's, it's, um, it's pretty generic, but um, we know from the context of Isaiah, from the history of Second Kings, we know the nature of their sins. Um, he says iniquities, transgressions, they've violated the covenant, um, they have went after idols, uh, even to the point where um, they have gone after Molech to burning their children in the fire. Later on, God will say that, that, that Judah has exceeded Israel in their sins, and uh, that is quite the accusation. Um, but here he says that it's your iniquities, your transgressions, uh, for which she sold herself and by which she was put away, uh, either referring to the, the Babylonian captivity uh, or, uh, because it's not specific, uh, the dispersion and persecution of the Jews in the last day. It could be both. Um, it might be that the, the first being a type of the second or uh, the first foreshadowing the latter. Uh, in either case, <clears throat> Israel is out of the land of covenant, Okay? And they've been cut off from the blessings of the covenant. They're under uh, divine chastisement. They're being disciplined for rebellion. And um, it's, it's ugly. And apparently, it's, it's at that time, uh, or it will be at that time, uh, when Judah specifically will be concerned that God has divorced her for her uncleanness. And the, the passage here in verse 1 is referring actually to, to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, uh, where there's this uh, regulation from God about uh, the putting away of a wife for her uncleanness. We'll have to get into all that in Matthew chapter 9, so that's on the horizon as well. Very difficult passage um, to interpret. But here, they will think, at this time of divine chastisement, that God has treated them like a wife who is unclean, uh, given her a certificate of divorce, and put her away, sent her away, okay? Uh, or uh, treating them like a, uh, you know, like a, she's been sold as a slave, 
because he was desperate for money. The reference to Exodus 21, verse 7. And you remember the, the widow when uh, Elisha uh, increased the oil for her? Remember, he did that because the creditors were coming after her and they were going to force her to uh, put her boys into slavery to pay her bills. And uh, so that's kind of the idea here, that God's either treating them in their chastisement like a wife who's been divorced or a child that's been sold into slavery to, to appease the creditors, okay? Well, there's a couple things here. Uh, God never puts away his people like, uh, uh, like in a divorce, okay? And <clears throat> he doesn't have any creditors. He doesn't have them. Uh, he owes no man anything at all, okay? The promises of God to Israel uh, in the context of land and the context of blessing, they were, well, the context of the land was unconditional and it was unilateral, but enjoying the land was conditional. Remaining in the land and the blessings that went with it, that was conditional, okay? But the promises, God can't go back on a unilateral, unconditional promise. That makes him a bad husband, okay? And God's not going to sin as it were just because his people sin. He won't do that, okay? So uh, the question should be understood in a certain way. The idea is that you, you think that I've divorced you. If that is true, show me the certificate. If, if this is all legal, if it's all legitimate, where's the certificate of divorce? Because I don't see one, okay? You say that I've sold you to pay off a creditor. Could you point out the creditor to me? Because I don't have any. I don't have any. You only think I've cast you off forever because of what you've brought on yourself. You're certainly experiencing discipline. But if it's speaking of the Babylonian captivity, was it permanent? No, it was 70 years. And then God brought them back. And then they came under test again, right? Yeah. So the context confirms the temporary nature of God's discipline of Judah. And then as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah most commonly in a single chapter, will pronounce judgment upon Israel. But then what does he do by the end of it? When the discipline is thorough enough, I will restore you over and over and over again. It may seem like it's permanent. And honestly, would 70 years feel like it's permanent? It would, but it's not. He says, <clears throat> why when I came, that is when I came to you, was there no man? Why when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. So in the midst of Judah's sin and the consequences she was experiencing, God was still faithful to send them prophets, right? Who were the prophets in um, the captivity? Who was it initially? Jeremiah, and then who was Daniel? But there was another exile prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was also an exile, okay? And he was uh, clearly sent to the people in exile, okay? Calling them to repent, calling them into faithfulness to God, okay? So in the midst of Judah's sin and the consequences he was experiencing, God kept sending prophets with the call to repentance, okay? By which they would have been forgiven, and they would have been delivered still within the, the, they would have remained in discipline for seven years because it was pronounced, but they would have enjoyed the fellowship of God 
through this, the, the, the blessing of walking with him. But when the prophets called out, what was the problem? What's always been the problem with Israel? They ignore. They ignore. Judah kept sinning. And instead of crying out to the Lord, she cried out to her idols and for other nations to deliver her. That was the problem. She was suffering for her idolatry. And instead of repenting of idolatry, she went deeper into idolatry. Okay? And they asked idols for help. And they did this as if God was unable to reach her where she was at and to deliver her. Now, of course, Judah is not the only one guilty of that particular crime. How many times have we felt like we were out of God's reach and so we just didn't cry out? Okay? There's nothing out of his reach, though, nothing beyond his strength or ability. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. So, in other words, with this verse and the last one, the, the, the verse should actually be up higher. Uh, <clears throat> verse 3 should have come sooner and included um, this right, or verse, yeah, verse 3 should have included both the end of verse 2 and this verse here. But the idea there is if he can deprive the fish of water in the Red Sea and the Jordan River, as we see in the scriptures, and cause the earth to spin on its axis so there is light and dark, if he can do all of those things, if he can control nature, can he, you think he can deliver his people? And it's interesting that the reference to the, the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea rather, that was in the midst of deliverance. So if he can do it in the past, he can do it again, right? But they wanted their idols instead, which could not save. Now this is interesting to me. It amazes me how people will seek relief from anything but the Lord when relief requires repentance. If, if relief from the Lord requires repentance, they will scatter to the wind and look for anything else to solve their problems. If, if God is calling them to you know, change their lifestyle, to end a relationship, to end a habit, and, and we know that lifestyles cause all kinds of problems for people, even depression, I mean, just endless problems. So instead of cha- repenting, changing the lifestyle, They'll search out every medical means possible to give them relief. Not that there's, there's not good medical means to, to relieve problems, but some of them clearly require repentance. But they don't want to do that. They want to cling to their lifestyle. They want to cling to a, an ungodly relationship that's destroying them because they're just not willing to let go. And then when the Lord sends faithful people like you guys to clearly speak the truth to them, words of life, they, they push you away. And then not only do they push you away, they bite. They say, you're so judgmental. How dare you judge me? That's really not the point, is it? We love you, and we know that clearly that if you would repent, that you, you would be refreshed, you'd be restored, and you could, you could live again. You would feel good. So many things. It's amazing how people can treat you and convey the simple truth of God's word, and they punish the messenger. Yeah. So God, because they ignored, they would not repent, he hands them over to the consequences of their sin to teach them. And then shifts here, it says, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. I wish I had that all the time. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. So at this point, the prophecy Uh, Isaiah's attention has been shifted to the servant of the Lord 
And he's, he's held up in contrast to Judah. As opposed to the foolishness of Judah, the servant of the Lord was wise, able to speak encouragement to the weary. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, like you, nor did I turn away. You see? So unlike Judah, the servant of the Lord learns, he behaves wisely, he hears, he heeds God's instruction, and he does not veer from it. He says, and and this is him explaining how, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me or scourged me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. When it came to obedience, Judah failed, but when God sent his servant to execute the most difficult form of obedience in his mission, he, he obeyed without wavering. The text says that he gave his back to scourging. He surrendered his back to be scourged. He, he, he gave his cheek so that they could yank his beard out and his face he did not turn away when they spat in his face. You know, one of the interesting things about the, the beard being plucked out is you remember when <clears throat> Jesus came to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they did not recognize him. I know that he was in his glorified body, but I think there was also something about his appearance that they didn't recognize that was just natural. Um, Jews had bushy beards, but you've known people that have had bushy beards and then shaved, and you don't recognize them, do you? I think I've told you before, my dad, he used to work for the railroad, and he would be gone for a long, long time. And he would, uh, but when he left, he left with a big bushy beard. And then he would come home shorn, and we, we didn't know who he was, and so we, would, we were reluctant to go near him when we were little tiny, you know? And so I think that his appearance because they yanked so much of his beard out, torturing him, that that was another reason they didn't recognize. So no doubt this refers you know, to the passion of Christ. The old Latin passion means suffering. He was turned over to Pilate. He didn't resist, but he did. He gave his back to the cat of nine tails, the, the Roman scourge, <coughs> to mock him. That's the issue of the beard. You, know, you remember the men of <coughs> David that were sent to the king of Moab? was at Moab, and they shaved a half of their beard and cut their garments off at the waist and sent them back. It was to shame them. The beard was important to them in their culture. And then, of course, um, probably the same in every culture, to to shame someone if you spit in their face. And the interesting thing about this whole context here is that Jesus, he knew in advance that all of this stuff would happen to him, and yet he went. But he says, for the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So he says, I, I, this is all written you know, hundreds of years before Christ came. He's here talking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I know this awaits me in my incarnation when I come to the earth as a man. But knowing all of that, <clears throat> what he would face as he told his disciples many times, he, he says he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Setting some, their, you know, that one's face like a flint spoke of extreme determination. I'm determined. I'm determined to do this. Now it has come to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We see the fulfillment of it right here in the life of Christ. So Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, 
he expresses to them, basically, he knew that he would not only face the wrath of man, he also knew that he would face his father's righteous displeasure towards sin and that he would receive our punishment for it. And yet he was determined to go. It's one thing to, you know, go, yep, I did it. I deserve punishment and I'm just going to grit my teeth and bear it. That's not the context here. He knew that he would bear the sins of others and then bear the brunt of the, of the wrath of God. You know, imagine the degree or the amount of punishment that all the collective sins of every person throughout all history deserves. Imagine that. I mean, it's just staggering to consider what Hitler deserves. But when you quantify, if you could, all the sins that would ever be committed from Adam's sin to the last sin that will be committed just before the final judgment, the offense will be so immeasurable. It just, we cannot fathom the depth of God's infinite hatred for it. And yet the sum total of all the sins of humanity, the scriptures say, were laid upon Christ who endured the eternal wrath of God that we all deserve. You guys, we can't fathom all of that sin and we can't fathom the infinite eternal wrath of God, but Jesus could do all those numbers in his head and knowing all of that, he set his face like a flint for Jerusalem. He knew before. He did not waver. It's crazy. As Hebrews talks about, you know, he knew that beyond Calvary, there was great joy. But the path to Calvary, or the path beyond Calvary, was marked with horrors beyond comprehension. What a man. Pilate said it right, right? Behold the man. What a savior. And then he confesses, he is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Now remember in verse 7, he said the Lord uh, would help him. And now he says the Lord justifies him. He'll say it again in a minute that the Lord will help him. So Jesus went to the cross with all confidence that he would indeed see his father on the other side of his suffering and humiliation. And he knew that even though he was despised and rejected by men, he was absolutely justified. That is, he was viewed perfectly righteous in his father's sight going to Calvary. I'm I'm a righteous man going to a criminal's death. He knew all this. He was without moral blemish, completely innocent. And so here he's saying, um, if, if there are any accusers, let him face me. If there are charges, bring it bring it. Crazy. When he finally does face his accusers, which he will, it will be at the judgment bar of God, and he will be on the bench. Everything will change. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So the servant, he's confident that literally here in the text, Lord Yahweh is what the Hebrew says. Lord Yahweh will help him. So he says, who out there will try to condemn me? It is God who has justified me. These two verses are so important. Does that language sound familiar anywhere in the New Testament? Romans 8, that's right. Um, Paul uses these two verses to argue the same thing for those who believe in Christ. That's crazy. It is. It goes like this. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Prior to this, Paul said that for whom God foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, these he also glorified. You see, the doctrine of justification, as Paul has argued already in Romans 4, teaches that that all of the believer's sins are forgiven and that all of Jesus' perfect innocence and his righteousness was transferred to the believer and therefore every believer is viewed by God the same as he views his son. That's the argument here. Isn't that a, that's a powerful argument. He judges us based upon Jesus' righteousness and nothing of our own. Well, if that is true of God's elect, and it is, Who could possibly come against us? Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You guys, all charges of all human history were brought against Jesus and he he was punished for what we deserved. There are no more charges that can be brought and the eternal justice of God has been completely satisfied. Or as the often translations have, he's been propitiated. His wrath has been completely appeased for the believer. And now Jesus stands before the Father defending those to whom his blood was applied, that is applied through faith. So therefore, the same confidence that Jesus went to the cross with we can go through life with because, not because of what we've done, but purely because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. Paul said, therefore, having been justified by faith, what tense is that? It's past tense. We have peace with God, present tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. And and the, the crazy thing about all of this is he has not justified the innocent. He hasn't justified the good person, he's justified the ungodly who have trusted in him. Paul says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, accounted, imputed, attributed, transferred. That's great. You see, there was no one godly to justify, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when Christ came, there was no one godly to justify. But if God has declared you righteous in his sight through faith, it is final. It's final. So it's, it's amazing. The, Paul uses Jesus' description of his standing before God as the exact same standing for us. It's a very humbling reality. It's great. So he says, who among you fears the Lord and who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. So here in the text, it's not just about fearing the Lord. It's about obeying his servant. If you don't obey Christ, you don't obey the Father. Jesus even says that in the Gospels. So obeying his servant, walking in the light. So of course, in the scriptures, light is a reference to moral truth, right? To righteousness and justice. It's a life that is lived in step with Christ. Walk in the light, John says, as he is in the light, and you have fellowship with God. Okay? Those who do not fear the Lord, 
They're the ones that do not obey his servant. And this then, of course, leaves them in darkness. They're destitute of the truth. And they're outside the salvation of God. They're not outside of his reach. But unbelief has stayed the hand of God. They're well within the reach. But their unbelief has held him off. The prophet here is saying, just believe in the Lord and be saved. I mean, it's a pretty sweet deal to have the righteousness of the servant imputed to the ungodly. There's a good word for that in the New Testament. It's called the gospel. It's good news. It's good news. He says, look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, it's like saying, go ahead and walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you've kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So those who do not trust in the Lord and walk in his light, they always rely upon something else, something that can't save. Those who refuse to trust in the Lord but choose to place their trust elsewhere, they put their soul in danger, the wrath of God, as John 3.36 says. He who does not believe abides under the wrath of God. They abide there. That's their dwelling place. They live under his wrath. Their soul is in danger. Not good. And, and they deserve it. Those who do not receive the righteousness of Christ through faith, they will stand before God on judgment day and they will give an account for all their sins. Okay? And they will bear the eternal consequences for it. You guys know what double jeopardy is, right? Well, Paul kind of addresses the idea of double jeopardy. That if God were to hold your sins against you, that would be unjust because all of those sins have already been paid for. But those that have never had their sins paid for, they remain as they were and God views them as they are, not as Christ is. The soul is in danger. Yeah. We have no righteousness to offer God for our salvation. Every last ounce of righteousness must be supplied by Jesus. Martin Luther called it a an alien righteousness. It's foreign to us. It's not indigenous to us. It's, it's supplied to us. It's amazing. And it, it's so crazy that man can be so sinful and in so much danger, and then to have God offer them so much, for them to cast it off, it's just, that's why the scriptures say God just turns them over, turns them over. You will give an account for your sins, but you know what? We, we won't. We won't. Romans 4.8 says, that he will never hold our sins against us because it would be unjust. Yeah. Amen? All right? We have the gospel in the Old Testament. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Are you guys warm? I'm sweating. All right? No, the lights aren't hot. They're all LED. So, yeah. What's that? Or something. Yeah. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that, Lord, it is amazing that as, as you've continually said throughout the, the book of Isaiah that your your infallible foreknowledge of, of all things, past and future, is, is the proof of your deity. And Lord, Isaiah was, was preaching about things that had not yet happened and doing it with great detail. And it'll be even more detail later on in this section. But we thank you, Lord, that from all eternity you've had our salvation in mind. And you've known all along that we would rebel and that not only would we reject you, that without you, we wouldn't come to you. So Lord, we thank you that sent Christ to do the amazing. And it just impresses me more that he knew everything in advance. And there was no reluctancy, but he set his face like a flint, that he might redeem us and that he might glorify you.
forever. Lord, thank you for this great salvation that you've secured for us. You indeed save, as the author of Hebrews says, to the uttermost. We thank you that you scraped the bottom of the barrel. And Lord, it is our pleasure to worship you, to follow you. And Lord, we, we lift up the, the youth camp to you. And Lord, I know that there are a few kids that really have, they don't have the knowledge of God, not in their hearts. They're not believers. And so I pray, Lord, that, that during their time together, that, that you would open their hearts, that you give them ears to hear, and that the reality of the gospel would bring them to a place of humility and brokenness, or that you would grant them repentance, and they would trust you, Lord, for salvation. Lord, we also know that there are youth that know very well, but they're not following you. They're not in obedience to you. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring strong conviction in their lives, that they would, they would wake up and they would realize that the most important thing is to love you and to serve you. And Lord, for those kids that are there and they're serious about their faith, Lord, I, I pray that you would use this to just drive them deeper, their love for you, their devotion. So Lord, just, I, we just pray that this would all bear fruit. And uh, so be with the leaders, fill them with your spirit, Help them to speak words of life to our young people. So, Lord, thank you for that privilege. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.